Earlier this month, we brought you The Outlook, presented by Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. We had four great in-depth conversations on some of the issues that are impacting our local economy. Here's my conversation with Dr. Dan Meltzer of Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Happy to be. You know, it's an interesting time in healthcare. Uh, it's always an interesting time in healthcare. Uh, this week, fairly mo- uh, momentous with the public health emergency uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic formally ending tomorrow. I think a lot of people have been a little bit over COVID for a while, but some of the more formal things are starting to end. And uh, we thought it was a good time to chat with you about what we're seeing in the healthcare field. So uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, happy to talk. So we've got that uh, health emergency ending. It's been in effect for really just about the last three years. A lot has changed in that time. Uh, what do you see impacting the health insurance segment and healthcare generally coming up? Yeah, so, so a couple things. Let, let's talk first about kind of the ending of the public health emergency, which really was instated to expand benefits during the pandemic. Um, and now they will kind of return to what's covered under normal kind of health plan benefits. So primarily sort of from an economic standpoint, what it means is that what we call cost shares or co-pays or co-insurance will apply. So uh, as it relates to the, the pandemic, things like COVID-19 vaccinations, boosters will be considered preventive care, should be covered by most health plans, not at a cost if in received in network. COVID testing um, again, if it's ordered on an in-network provider, will likely include a cost share, a copay, a co-insurance. Over-the-counter COVID tests, which we've all, many of us have used you know, yeah. several times, will no longer be covered and most likely will actually be an out-of-pocket expense. They will be widely available in the supermarkets and so forth, but will not necessarily be covered as they were under the public health emergency. Um, and then the other things it, with regards to the public health emergency as it pertains to insurance, if people need sort of early or more medicine per se, they're often going to have to call the customer service team um, before just getting it at the pharmacy. So there's some tweaks really around the insurance as it pertains to the public health emergency. And then there's other things that we can talk about, for example, Medicaid or site of care and um, changes in payment models and things like that. Yeah, we're going to get into some of that. But something that was interesting there is, you know, these COVID rapid tests, which have been you know, for a while, the governor, uh, the government would mail them to you, and then you could roll into an Albertsons or a Winco and get them uh, for free. Now, when people think that they might have COVID, if they don't have a stockpile, like a lot of us do, and they need a test, they're going to have to pay for that. Are those fairly low cost still? Do you think they are? And there, there are many of them. So there's a greater quantity. There's high availability. So the, the kind of supply and demand calculus tends to lower the cost accordingly. Think of it almost as a, you know, an over-the-counter pregnancy test. Um, which has been used, you know, for decades, it's going to be somewhat akin to that. So you'll have the, the generic brand, you may have the, the name brand, there'll be five or six of them sitting on a, on a, you know, at a Walgreens or an Albertsons or something like that. Um, and people will be able to just sort of, you know, pay for them, but they'll be out of pocket. They no longer um, will be covered per se, as they were during the pandemic. And, you know, costs range five to $20 ish, depending on the type of test, the brand of test, et cetera. Sounds like if people want to stock up, today's the last day to do it. So maybe some good advice since this all ends uh, ends tomorrow. Let's talk about um, the expansion to, to Medicaid that has happened. You know, are we going to see a change for Idahoans who are on the Medicaid program? We will. Um, so really what happened um, 
during the pandemic is what was called sort of Medicaid redetermination. So Medicaid protection was put in place at the beginning of the pandemic to expand coverage for people that otherwise would be ineligible. Congress recently passed a bill that ends this continued coverage. So when the Idaho Department Health and Welfare, DHW, determines that eligibility for Medicaid, they're actually working on determining eligibility for the remainder of the year, and it will no longer keep ineligible individuals on Medicaid as this Medicaid protection no longer applies. So DHW will be processing, reevaluating um, who will get coverage. They're doing it on a monthly basis. And candidly, it may impact more than 150,000 Idahoans who began 2023 with Medicaid protection. As of now, the numbers are about 25,000 have already um, de been determined to be ineligible. Now, having said that, people who are no longer no longer eligible for Medicaid may be able to do a couple things. They may be able to apply for a tax credit to help pay for health insurance, and they can do that through Your Health Idaho, which our state, which is our state's health insurance marketplace. Um, and Your Health Idaho may then contact individuals about eligibility for the tax credit and or how to enroll in individual health insurance if needed. We'll have that website address right here at the bottom of the screen for people who, uh, who want to see that. Perfect. We know that COVID just, you know, it made massive changes in, in all areas of our society. What are you seeing for some of the ways that we think this is going to endure for challenges to healthcare coming out of the pandemic, both on the good side and maybe on the not so good side? Yeah, you know, we had to get we had to get creative. We had to get kind of scrappy. So, for example, one of the things that we saw that I think will endure, in fact, it's already continuing to endure, is virtual visits slash telehealth slash what we call digitally enabled care, where people are using means just like you and I are to contact health providers. So we know that from the beginning to now the end or end-ish, 2018 to 2022, a time frame that virtual health visits have, have doubled, in some case tripled. Wow. Um, nearly two thirds of people surveyed by a recent in a recent Deloitte survey um, had used a virtual health care visit. It's convenient. It's often lower uh, lower expense. So I think that we'll continue to see telehealth, virtual care, what we call digitally enabled care, to continue. Certainly for certain indications. Other things, surgeries, for example, not amenable to telehealth. Some of the challenges that we've seen is people postponed many of their routine or even elective procedures or screening exams, exams. And we're still struggling with that when you look at preventive care. So things like cancer screening, immunizations, even well-child or well-adolescent visits. We, we don't do great as a state compared to other states with these preventive screening mechanisms. So we have to kind of rally again and remember it's time to get your mammogram or your colon cancer screening or your flu shot, um, pap smear, for example, get your children checked to make sure they're growing and developing appropriately, getting their screening blood tests. Those things, it's important, I think, that we sort of up the ante, if you will, now that they, now, now that we're sort of coming out of the pandemic and they've oftentimes been postponed. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I went and saw my primary care doc for a, a wellness screening about a month ago, and it was the first time I'd been in since 2019. And it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't negligence, but it was just like, correct. Nobody was doing it for two years, really. And then life's busy and you're like, oh, wait, gosh, it's been four years. I need to go get in and do that. 
you know, are we are we seeing some slowing in the or some some return from the slowness of elective surgeries? Obviously, those completely stopped for a while, restarted, then kind of stopped again when we had some of those uh, crisis standards of cares issues. Are we seeing that kind of come back now? We we are. I mean, and and you know, elective sur- we, although we call them elective surgeries, sure. they're still they're still medically right. indicated. Yeah. So you know, if your if your hip's bothering you. Um, you may have postponed it because you could still perhaps get around, but that hip is in all likelihood still bothering you or getting worse. Um, so we are seeing things like orthopedic surgeries, urologic surgeries, uh, head and neck surgeries, general surgeries, et cetera. Um, we're seeing upticks in those because those pains, th- those pains, those symptoms don't go away. Um, they may not be acutely life-threatening. So yes, uh, the v- surgical volumes are in fact increasing and have been over the last couple of years. Is there concern about, you know, we, we went a couple of years with people not getting some of these screenings, not doing these elective surgeries or, 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 you know, medically urgent surgeries. Do you worry that down the road that this is going to sort of turn into a debt on society and we're going to have some big medical challenges from people because they aren't doing it or they stopped or they paused or, I mean, are we headed for some choppy waters there, do you think, or do you think things will level out? Well, pro- probably both. I, I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball. You know, we already emergency department volumes are, are are up, so people are certainly seeking care. Again, our preventive screenings for things like cancer are are, are terrible in many cases, um, and so the worry is: will we see more cases of breast cancer, colon cancer? Not only more cases, but more cases that have progressed to the point where they're more severe and require more intensive therapy. Um, if therapy is available at all, depending on the lo- the stage of cancer. So things like that, I do worry about. For example, we've seen, um, you know, massive upticks in behavioral health needs, particularly amongst adolescents. And if you're not taking your child or your adolescent to get screened routinely, you may not be aware that there are certain problems that exist that can turn into things like substance use or more severe problems downstream. So I, I think the take home is, it's time to go back and get our screening exam as much as we did on a regular basis because those diseases don't stop for time. What about this behavior, the behavioral health, health side and the, and the mental health side, I think we're starting to see as a society become more and more of a pressing challenge. Do you think that that kind of interacts here? Uh, are people, we're seeing even just a shortage of counselors in Idaho and, and just going and talking to somebody is, is, sometimes challenging for people. Do you think that that all plays together? And, and are there worries that, that we're going to see consequences from that as well? We already are. I mean, the, the other pandemic, if you will, really has been around behavioral health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be depression, that can be mood disorder, uh, that can be anxiety, it can be stress management, it can turn in, it can be substance abuse, some of which times is, is related. We know that people with behavioral health conditions are tend, tend to be three times more expensive than people with, excuse me, behavioral health conditions and medical conditions tend to be three times more expensive than those with one or the other. We know people with, you know, behavioral health conditions often have medical conditions, people with medical conditions often have behavioral conditions, they go together. So I mean, it's really the other um, the other, the other pandemic, if you will, we know that access is a challenge. It has been a challenge. And I know the good news is there's been hundreds more, um, behavioral health providers credentialed in the state of Idaho, um, over the past several years. We also back to the telehealth piece, behavioral health is particularly suitable for virtual care. So there are many, many excellent alternatives to an in-person visit that can be uh, managed um, vis-a-vis telehealth, and that can be for a wide variety of behavioral health conditions. Don't forget, behavioral health is not just 
one condition, just like physical health is not one condition. Cancer is different than hypertension. It's different than diabetes. It's different, different than reflux. And the same goes for behavioral health. Depression may be different than anxiety requires a different intervention than obsessive compulsive disorder requires a different intervention than substance use disorder. So there is a wide variety of services available. The key is to A, identify that I or someone that we know has a problem and B, talk to your provider or health plan about how to access these new and frankly, in some cases, improved uh, modalities for behavioral health care. Yeah, I mean, telehealth really has made uh, going to a counselor, doing a lot of routine visits so much easier. I haven't figured out how to do the dentist virtually, though. I'd really like that if we could figure that out. That <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> that would be super helpful. What should what should patients, people um, think about when they're looking at it for a healthcare provider in this kind of formal post COVID era? There's a couple things, you know, that people I think need to think about in terms of where to go and when to go. For, first of all, we talked a little bit about this. What's the urgency of the condition? Um, is it something, you know, you're having a hard time breathing? Are you having chest pain? Those are significant. We want you to get care in a timely manner. Other things um, may, like we talked about preventive screenings, um, wellness checks. The, so the element of time and urgency. The other thing in terms of time is how timely and how available are some of those services? So waiting for primary care physicians is, is often recommended for, for most things because it tends to be a little more comprehensive. It tends to be a little more um, consistent, um, but that can, we know that can take days to weeks. Telehealth, urgent care is often available, um, you know, within hours. Emergency departments are available 24-7, um, but, you know, there's, there's a cost to that economically. And there can be a cost in terms of time and, and weights. And we want to make sure that those services are available for those that need them most. Let's talk about fee for service. So first, if you can explain for people what fee for services, I think that that's helpful because I'm not sure everybody is fully versed in some of these jargony terms uh, for insurance. So help us help explain what fee for service is and that model is. Yeah. Fee for services is, is sort of the, the traditional or kind of older method of paying for healthcare. Frankly, it's the method that you pay for, for any service. Uh, you'd have a, you have a plumber come to your house, then they charge you a fee and you pay it. That's really no different for healthcare. You see a, a clinician and, and they do something and tests, procedures, exams, interventions, and they, they bill and, and they get paid. The challenge has been historically with that is that it is added and added and added to the national healthcare spending, which is, you know, about 6.8 trillion anticipated by 2030. It's gone up way more than the cost of living. Um, so it, that, that, that trend has not been sustainable for a variety of reasons, not only economically, but we want to, we want to ensure that, that the payment that we're rendering is for the right care is for right. high quality care, that we're not just paying for things to be done. We're paying for the right things to be done in the right way. So then are there alternatives to the kind of pay a plumber model? Um, what does that look like? And, and are you, do you think that that's needed? And, and if so, do you, are you optimistic we might see change there? It's a hundred percent needed. Uh, it's already in place across the country. Uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has instituted these kind of alternative payment models now for, for many years and health plans have followed with uh, depending on their, their various lines of business. So there's, again, there's, there can be fees plus performance standards. So that there's a fee, there's a baseline fee, for example, and then uh, there's additional standards that have to be met to receive additional compensation. 
Um, there can be things and there are things like bundled payments. So you get a payment sum of money for a group of related services. So yeah, you have to care for a patient within this context of money. So that in a sense, the right care um, over time by the right people. Um, there can be condition-based payment, which you get paid based on a medical condition. So all you get a sum of money and then providers in the system are expected to manage and address those health problems with that amount of money. There can be episodic payment or time-based payment where payments are bundled or warranted for a series of services over a period of time. The idea really with these alternative payment models is to align patients, we're all patients, healthcare providers and payers, payers such that patients receive the care they need to address their conditions and they don't receive unnecessary or unavoidable or avoidable services. The challenge with paying to do is we tend to do more and if we do more, we can harm people. So, so we know that not all medicines are safe and not all surgeries are safe and not all hospitalizations are safe. So we want to ensure the right care at the right time. So that's a quality mechanism, if you will, for patients. For providers, they're able to deliver the services their patients need. They're not going to lose money. They perform better. They get more money. And for payers, it's kind of the arbiters of expense, if you will, to try to manage the system, really. You're paying for the right care at the right time and the right place. I'm trying to align some incentives a little bit there. Right, exactly. Dr. Daniel Meltzer with Regents Blue Shield of Idaho. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There's no place quite like Idaho. That's why Regents Blue Shield of Idaho is constantly reimagining the healthcare experience, tailoring it to fit the needs of local families and businesses. Rooted here since 1946, we're shaping the future with cutting-edge digital solutions, Idaho-based customer service, and unparalleled access to top doctors. That's the region's difference you can count on. We get you because we are you.